Okay, would you turn to Judges chapter 3? We're going to be reading uh, quite a bit of from the chapter. And as you turn there, I want to ask, um, how many of you like to read biographies? Biographies. Or should I ask how many like to read? <laughs> I love to read biographies. Currently, I'm reading one about Dick Cheney, the ex-vice uh, president of the US. I've read about Condoleezza Rice and, and Colin Powell and Winston Churchill and Maggie Thatcher and Lord Mountbatten and all that. And, and it's always inspiring to me uh, how these people, and especially to read about their weaknesses. You know, like Dick Cheney, uh, some kind soul gave him a full scholarship to Yale University and he flunked out. Uh, the first year, he did so badly that they gave him a gap year. So just go back to your farm and do something and come back and try again. Then he came back and I think by the second year, he really flunked badly, and he flunked out. <laughs> but he became the, the, the vice president of the, the U.S. And, and I like to say much of our lives, or at least much of my life, is shaped by the stories and the exploits of uh, famous people. Um, from my earliest childhood days, I was told the story of UFA. How many of you have heard of, heard of UFA? UFA who lived uh, in the 1100s. And from this story came a very famous saying, Chinese saying. I hope I pronounce it right. It means to serve your country with utmost loyalty. And in Chinese history, at least, he is like the paragon, the model of loyalty and patriotism. And UFA was a national hero of the Southern Song. Uh, Song Dynasty in China. He was born in a poor family, uh, taught from young the values of loyalty, and tradition has it, as in this picture, that his mother tattooed these four words, serving your country with utmost loyalty, on his back. And when he grew up, he became a famous general. But he was falsely accused, and he was betrayed, and he was executed. Um, can you tell me What's this got to do with UFA? Well, the story goes that there was a pastry vendor who kneaded a piece of dough into two human shapes. And these two human shapes represented UFA's betrayers. And he twisted them together and he threw them into boiling oil. And that's the origin of Yao Zha Kui. Right? Oil fried devil representing these two betrayers of a patriotic, loyal man. Or some people call it Yao Zha Kui. Some people call it Yu Tiao. Or in this picture that I took from Tang's basement where they sell food stuff, you tell me. Or you tell. Okay? Um, the proper English word for this is Chinese crueless. Okay? Quite clueless. That is crueless, right? And there was once I sat down and in some restaurant or cafe and I opened up the menu and they call this Chinese croissant. Uh, that you never knew, right? Uh, and, and these are all the names of uh, something that came from a very famous uh, story. This morning we prayed for Chen Yang who is going to be enlisted into the army. And I was just thinking that all NS men, first meal, should be this, right? That's patriotism. It represents patriotism. And uh, night snacks would be Yu Tiao or Yao Cha Kui, which is a much, much better name than Yu Tiao. So when I was old enough to ask my parents, what was the meaning of my name? My name is Guo Hui. What was the meaning of my name? I was told it's got something to do with country, Guo, and Hui, glory. So it's like the country's glory. Okay, it's kind of hard to lift up, to, to live up to. But, but I think I'm basically a patriot at heart. So when I was 18 years old, to sign on in the army at 18 was no problem for me. It was like, so right, so right. And, and, and I had a career in the armed forces for nine years. And when other countries treat us badly, I will refuse to go to that country on holiday. I will refuse to go there to shop or to even buy petrol. And on National Day, 
I never leave Singapore. Okay, I'm 56 years old this year. I have never left Singapore on the 9th of August because I like to watch the parade. Okay, some of you might be thinking, it's crazy, but I really enjoy watching the parade. I guess that's what UFA has done to me. You know, one of the most fun ways and one of the most beneficial ways to learn from the Bible is to study the life of biblical characters. Because the Bible holds nothing back. It's not like you read some famous hero of, of certain legends and, and this guy does nothing wrong. Okay, they, they, they are like perfect, but the Bible is not like that. Yes, the Bible has superheroes like Abraham and Moses and David, but, but they are very flawed people also. And there are some very small and obscure characters in the Bible that we would do well to learn from. Today, we're going to look at three of them. Last Sunday, we looked at this, this horrible cycle that, that goes through uh, the book of Judges of, of the people sinning and then they were oppressed and they were sorrowful. And then they turned to God in supplication and prayer and God sends a judge, a deliverer, and uh, saves them out of uh, oppression. And these are the people we call judges. We're going to be covering several of them uh, in the next few weeks. And today we look at three judges that God was able to use. The first one is Othniel. If you turn to Judges chapter 3, we're going to be re reading from verse 7 to 11. Judges chapter 3 from verse 7 to 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathim, king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. For eight years, Israel was oppressed by Aram or by the Mesopotamians. Who was Othniel, the judge that God raised up? Othniel was the son of the less well-known baby brother of Caleb. Who was Caleb? Caleb and Joshua, if you remember, were uh, one of the, the two of the twelve spies that went out into the promised land to spy out the land. The other ten say it was horrible, it's too dangerous, but these two say, yes, we can go and get it, we can go and take it. And they were the only two survivors from that generation of Moses uh, to come out of the Exodus. And Caleb, in Joshua chapter 14, verse 10, Caleb is one of these macho, macho men. Caleb will say, so here I am, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. What a man. What a man. One macho dude. <laughs> I think you, you say it like that, right? And Caleb had a younger brother called Kenaz, K-E-N-A-Z. And whenever the name Kenaz is mentioned in the Bible, I think it's about three times, he's always Kenaz, the younger brother of Caleb. Imagine growing up hearing the stories of your famous uncle Caleb and then nothing about your father Kenaz. And every time your father is mentioned, he's the brother, the younger brother of Caleb. Maybe that's why his father called him Othniel which means hero, lion of God. And Kenaz was dreaming that his son would be the hero that he wasn't, like his older brother. And Uncle Caleb said in Judges chapter 1, verse 12, Uncle Caleb says, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one, to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. And like, wow, the prize. So, obviously, Othniel was interested, as would be many other men, I think. And uh, I want to introduce another Chinese saying, which I can only say in Cantonese. Uh, it says, That means, an ugly thought 
wants to eat a beautiful swan. It basically is, is a taunt uh, to, to all these men who think that ugly and horrible and lowly educated man uh, wants to marry this beautiful princess. That's the idea. And I'm sure they said that in Hebrew in those days. But I believe Othniel ignored all these taunts. He thought about maybe his father's aspirations for him. He thought about his own name, which is Hero, Lion of God. And he captured this city that uh, Caleb set a challenge, this Kiriath Sefer, and he married his darling Ling Ling Long Long. You see, her name is Aksa. Aksa means that ankle bracelet where they have little bells on it, so you Ling Ling Long Long. Uh, I think that's what her name means. She must have been so cute. She must have been so cute. And I, didn't, I think from then onwards, Othniel became really famous, right? In the past, he was just the, the son of the baby brother of Uncle Caleb. Now he's the son-in-law of Caleb. He is the husband of Ling Ling Long Long. He's the husband of Aksa. But I believe Othniel was a really principled, even courageous man. Not be- only because he captured this city and won the hand of uh, Caleb's daughter, but because there is a very short snippet in Judges chapter 1, verse 14. It says, one day when Aksa came to Othniel, she urged him, I think she nagged him, to ask her father Caleb for a few, to ask Caleb for property. And the Bible doesn't say anything more about that. It suggests that Othniel, like, was the typical bochap man, <laughs> went in one year, went out the other. You know, when the daughter of General Caleb asks you, her husband, to ask her father for property, it takes a real man to stand up to her, right? I think he did that because the Bible doesn't mention that he ever did that. The Bible says that Aksa herself went to ask her father, and then the father gave her the land. The husband did nothing. You can imagine the bedtime talk that night, you know. You, Othniel, you good-for-nothing guy. I asked you to nag my... I nag you to ask my father, and you don't do anything. I got to do everything myself. But I think he stood on some kind of a principle, right? Why, why, why do you need to ask for more property? Verse 10 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and God used a man called Othniel, a man called Lion-Hearted Hero. He wasn't afraid of being unknown. He wasn't afraid of being taunted as so-and-so's son-in-law. He wasn't afraid to ignore his wife's nagging when it wasn't the principal thing to do. And because of that, he forged peace in Israel for 40 years. The next character we look at is a guy called Ehud. And let's read this long passage, Judges chapter 3 from verse 12 to 30. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet! And all the attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. 
Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. There they saw their Lord fallen to the ground, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the forts of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. So for eight years, uh, I'm sorry, for 18 years, they were oppressed by this Moabite king, Eglon. And Moab, if you read, was the, uh, a descendant of an incestuous relationship between Lot uh, and his elder daughter. Eglon, Eglon means fat, bull, or yeah, fat calf, right? And, and King Eglon must have been some politician because he was able to unite the Amalekites and the Ammonites with himself, the Moabites, three different tribes together, and then they conquered Israel and uh, they exacted an annual tribute, which is like a tax that you get from uh, this country that you have uh, uh, conquered. And so entered Ehud. Ehud, it says in the NIV, left-handed. Actually, in the Hebrew, it means an impeded right hand. Uh, that means maybe his right hand was shriveled. Maybe he had polio, I don't know. That his right hand wasn't so good, and so he began to use his uh, left hand. Um, how many left-handed here? Uh, left-handed people here? Very few. Uh, very few. I, I did the same at the first service. I reckon 2 to 5% only. Uh, I'm, I'm left-handed, but I'm a confused left-handed. I'll, I'll tell you later. But you have to understand the, the environment of those days about left-handedness. The Jewish practice favors right over left. They and this is tradition, right? This is not found in the Bible. They came to believe that the angel uh, that was seated at the right hand of God has good influence. That was a good angel. And there was an angel that was seated at the left hand of God, and this is the wicked angel. And so Orthodox Jews have a tradition of wearing uh, an amulet on the left hand to protect themselves from the influence of this angel that sits on the left hand of God, the wicked angel. And so they have what is called like a, a phylactery. Okay, I took this picture in, in, in Israel uh, last year. You see that leather strap they have on the left hand. Uh, uh, actually, it comes from the Bible, uh, but they've distorted it, right? The Bible in Deuteronomy eleven eighteen says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and in your minds. Tie them as symbols on your hand and bind them on your forehead. So you can see on his forehead there is this little box inside that scripture. as a, as a, a phylactery. But somehow it got twisted to, to mean protection from uh, a devil or something. And in the past, maybe it's even so today, all Jewish priests must be free from what is called the hundred bodily defects that some old-time scholar called Maimonides uh, uh, wrote and is recorded. One hundred defects. Included in these defects, are, of course, you cannot be blind, uh, you cannot be lame, um, you cannot have a broken hand, you cannot be a dwarf, and you cannot be left-handed. So if you're a left-handed person, tradition has it that you cannot be a priest. Even in French, there's a French word called gauche, G-A-U-C-H-E. In the French, it means left-handedness. The word gauche is also used in English. It means an awkward, clumsy person. You're a gauche person. So left-handed in French means something not so good in English uh, also. And, and it's true that when you're left-handed, it's very awkward, right? Have you ever sat as a right-handed person next to a left-handed person at the table? 
and then you are eating, and, and this person is also eating, and you langa, or you, you clash. Okay, in Latin, in Latin, um, the word for wicked is sinister. In English, the word for uh, sinister means anything that is on the left or left-handed. At least that's the old translation. Uh, nowadays, you don't say that. It just means evil. So the devil is always associated with the left. And in fact, the devil is left-handed. If you Google and Google image for devil, you will find a preponderance of the devil holding this pitchfork in his left hand. Now, there are some who draw it on the right hand, but mostly on, on the left side. And tradition has it that he always uses his left hand. Uh, so you <laughs> poor left-handed people. Well, not you, it's me. I'm also left-handed, except that I was trained from, from very young to use my right hand to, to hold chopsticks. And, and to write. And uh, last night, we had this function where Roslyn cooked a fantastic fish maw soup, and I was truly confused. When I took up the bowl, I immediately used my left hand to, to drink the soup with my, uh, a spoon, and after a while, I found myself using the right hand. So I'm, I'm totally confused, okay? I play racket games with my left hand, but I kick the football with my right leg, and uh, I use a scissor with my left hand, um, but sometimes I use a hammer with my right hand, so I'm confused. But let me put in a good word for all left-handers, okay? Because I'm one of you, except that I'm very confused. Uh, it is said that everyone is born right-handed, but only the greatest overcome it. Right? Yay for left-handers. And then it says that the left side of your brain controls the right side of your body, right? That's true. Uh, people find that out. It damaged your left side of the brain, and then you get uh, uh, impeded in your right hand. And then the right side of your brain controls the left side of the body, right? That's just the reverse. So, the conclusion is only left-handed people are in their right mind. Reasonable, right? So, yay for left-handed people. But, you know, how do you think this left-handed Ehud was chosen to bring tribute to a foreign king, Eglon? I think it might have been something like this, you know? A story is told of... Um, this zillionaire giving a lavish party in his big, huge bungalow with a big swimming pool. And this zillionaire filled the swimming pool with poisonous snakes. And then he issued a challenge. He says, to anyone brave enough to swim across this pool, I will give him a choice. Either you take a million dollars or you take my daughter's hand in marriage. No sooner were his words spoken than somebody jumped in and swam across the pool of poisonous sticks and got out the other side unharmed. So, <laughs> the, the zillion eye asked this young man, <laughs> so, congratulations. Now, what do you want? You want a million dollars? And the young man, <laughs> no. And I said, oh, in that case, you must want to have my daughter's hand in marriage. And the young man says, <laughs> no. So, the zillion eye was like puzzled. So, what do you want? And the young man, I want to know who pushed me in. So maybe King, uh, maybe Ehud was, was sort of like this young man. Why was he chosen to bring tribute to an evil king? Maybe he was pushed in because he was, maybe he was simple. Maybe he was expendable. Maybe he was just an honest and dependable guy if you bring Goal and tribute to the king, you're not going to pocket some for yourselves. He was just dependable, just a simple guy. But I believe he took his task seriously, and that's why he was chosen. And then he made a sword for himself, one and a half foot long, not a very big sword. Also, you must realize that in those days, Israel, when they were subject to oppression, they could not have metal, right? In case they make swords for themselves and rise up in revolution. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Not a blacksmith was found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines says otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So I think his sword that he made for himself, it says a double-edged sword, one and a half foot long was a wooden sword. And so as he made this little cute sword and people look at him with a shriveled right hand and uh, uh, maybe a more muscular left hand with this wooden sword, they must have laughed at him. See, this cute little guy with a withered right hand and simple fellow, they must have laughed at him. And they must have also laughed at him as he approached bearing 
tribute of taxes, maybe gold, maybe expensive foodstuff and, and jewelry or, or whatever. And they approach, he approached the king. I don't know if they have metal detectors in those days, probably not. They must have some lazy guards who did not bother to examine whether he had a sword, any kind, uh, wooden or, or metal, or maybe they think that this guy is a cute little fellow with a shriveled right hand, don't even bother. So he approached the king, he gave the tribute to the king. He had his sword on the right side, but nothing happened the first time round. So after he gave the tribute, he left and he went back to Israel. But as he was going back to Israel, he passed this place called Gilgal. And he saw all the idols and that's when he got fired up. That's when he got fired up. He says, no, I got to go back. I got to do something about this. And so he went back. He went back to King Eglon. And, um, and then he said, I have a secret word for you. I've got a word from the Lord uh, for you. And the king's servants at that time must have been enjoying themselves. They must have been very, really, really uh, uh, rowdy, you know. Uh, after maybe they were eating all the fine foods that, that was a tribute and they were dividing up the gold and, and maybe there was a woman around and they were carousing and it was so noisy when Ehud come back a second time to, to King Eglon that King Eglon shouted, Shut up! And then, what does it say? Verse 19, and the attendants left him. Alright, when this big fat king shouts, shut up. I can't do the fat part, I can do the shut up part. The, the attendants left him and, and he was left alone with Ehud. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. I believe the message was, God has appointed me to execute you. Alright, you evil king. So, his left hand, he took the sword from his right side and he stabbed King Eglon right through the back. The NRV puts it very nicely. He was one fat man, right? We just read that the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. He did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. But actually, it is a wrong translation. It really is wrong. There is a Hebrew word in this verse that the, the NIV uh, found uh, did not think it proper to translate literally, okay? I, I give you two other versions. This is from the New King James Version and the uh, New American Standard Version, which is a more literal translation. The Hebrew word is called Pashedona, okay? So King James Version says, And the shaft went in also after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that he could not draw the dagger out of the belly, and the dirt came out. Not clear. Okay, New American Standard Version. And the handle went in after the blade, the fat closed in over the blade, and he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Now you get a picture. Okay? So the coffee translation, and the shit came out. That's what it means. That's what it means. Okay? You just push it in, and then... And then Ehud ran away. Escaped. Closed the door, locked it. And the servants came around and said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house, verse 24. And they waited to the point of embarrassment. What happened there? It was smelly, right? It was smelly. So they thought he was relieving himself because the shit came out. And so servant A said to servant B, oh my goodness, King Eglon, he must have had onion pizza plus papaya last night or something. And, and this smell is unbearable. But then after they waited and they waited until the point of, of embarrassment, they went in, of course, they found the king very smelly, very dead very messy. And then Ehud went to the hill country of Ephraim and he blew his own trumpet. Not to boast, he blew the trumpet to ready the troops to this revolutionary battle for freedom. And they did it. They got freedom. For 80 years. 80 years. So that's the story of King Ehud. So fun, right? And, and now we look at Shamgar. Shamgar it's quite an amazing story. It's a one-verse biblical character. Okay, we read verse 31, very simple. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goat. He too saved Israel. Well, firstly, that's not very much for us to, 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 to draw from this, except the name. We look at Shamgar's name. Shamgar is a very pagan name. It resembles the name of a Hittite king. It means sword or something like that. It's not clear even now. 
and he comes from a very confused family background. He is called the son of Anath. Anath is the Syrian goddess of sex and war. So his father had a female name, and the female name of a Syrian god of sex and war. And he was a cowherd, right? He messes about with cows. I mean, he looked after. And in those days, and even if you remember when the, when the Jews were going into, into Egypt in Joseph's days, you know, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds because they were smelly people, they were simple people. All lifelong, they talked to sheep and, and goats and cows and not very cultured people. They smell bad. When, when God was preparing Moses for ministry, where did God send Moses to for 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd? When God was preparing young David, to be king. Where was David? David was a shepherd. And Shamgar was a shepherd, a cowherd. And all he had was this ox goat. Okay, this is a beautiful picture, right? It's, it's actually gold and crusted and all that, but it, it looks something like that. Six to seven feet with a pointed metal tip in front, and maybe sometimes there is this hook where you can hook uh, a cow back. That's all he had. God used this simple shepherd with a cattle prod to deliver Israel from 600 Philistines who were oppressing Israel. Maybe these 600 Philistines, or Palestinians, if you want to call them uh, today, Palestine came from the word Philistines, who were raining missiles on the Israelites, or who were digging tunnels to go and kill uh, Israelites. Maybe it was like that, and this man, Shamgar, delivered Israel from 600 Philistines, or maybe Palestinian terrorists, maybe. And so we have Othniel, hero, lion-hearted. He wasn't afraid of, of gossip uh, about being uh, 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 or marrying into fame and, and, and not royalty, marrying into, into fame. He delivered Israel. Israel had 40 years of peace. We have Ehud, somebody with uh, a withered uh, right hand, uh, but he had one good left hand, delivered Israel 80 years of peace. We have Shamgar, a weird name from a weird background, all he had was a cattle prod, and he delivered Israel from 600 Philistines. Up to now, I have just recycled my sermon from 10 years ago. Okay, in the February of 2004, I preached exactly the same thing. And it's a very simple lesson, right? It's like the, the, the next question you've got to ask after all this is, do you believe that God can use you? And I really don't believe anyone here will say no. Right? At least you will have an intellectual assent to say that, yeah, of course God can use uh, God can use a donkey, He can use me, He can use any one of us here. He used superheroes like Abraham, Moses, and David. He used a boy with five loaves and two fish. He used Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar. Of course He can use. Uh, Hassan Taylor, I mentioned last week, you know, seven generations of... Uh, of missionaries said this, you know, God chose me because I was weak enough. You know, everybody knows that if you are humble and if you are weak and, and, and God specializes in the weak, He makes them strong, He can use you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that, that, that not many of you were, were wise when you were called. Uh, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things, the despised things, uh, to nullify the things that are, so that no one can boast. And if I am to boast, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I think we know that. We know that here. We don't really have a problem believing that God can do anything and that can, God can use anyone and that God will use the weak people. We, we at least give that intellectual assent. But the problem really is, and this is what I've been struggling all week, I know that God can use me. Question is, do I want God to use me? Do you want God to use you or, or you're one of those who says, hey God, don't touch me. My life is pretty comfortable right now. Don't use me. Use Him. Use someone else. Also the question is, do the stories of this mighty man of God or Hassan Taylor or, or Shamga or Othniel or what I related to you, do they inspire you at all? Or do they actually discourage you? One time I was at a Christian retreat and I came across this book called The Fred Factor. And it's about, about this guy, Fred, who works in FedEx. And, and he was so good, you know, such a perfect 
management story, non-Christian story. How, how out of the way he was serving uh, people and became very famous. And, and I thought it would be so inspirational in this Christian retreat. But the feedback I got was that, eh, you know, it's like he's like that. But I'm not like that. You know, I'm not this super uh, service uh, a fellow. And I thought it would be inspiring to all of us. But it didn't happen that way. Um, so you might be one of those who, who says, uh, God, please don't use me. I'm, I'm weak. Don't really want to be used. Uh, you use someone else. Now, I just want to have a quiet, peaceful life. If, if you're like that, um, I think it's good because you've got great company. You've got great company throughout biblical history. Moses was like that, right? Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses was complaining to God, God, Hey, I'm not eloquent, okay? Uh, neither in the past nor since, I'm not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Jeremiah was like that, one of the most famous uh, uh, prophets. Uh, Jeremiah says, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. I'm just a kid. Don't use me. Ananias, the one who led uh, Paul, uh, who was blinded in the Damascus Road, I said, hey, you, God, you want me to go approach Paul? You know, I've heard reports about him, and this man, he's done harm to all the saints in Jerusalem, uh, Acts chapter 9, and, and he's dangerous, God. Jonah, we all know the story of Jonah. God asked him to go this way. He went that way. In fact, he's saying, hey, God, you cannot save these terrible people, okay? These uh, Assyrians, don't save these people. They deserve to die and go to hell. And judges, you will... You will um, study later in the story of Gideon. And Gideon says, how can I save Israel? I'm, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my family. I'm the lowest of the lowest. You cannot use me. Esther, Esther was like that. Esther told um, her uncle Mordecai, hey, do you know what happens when I approach the king without him asking? That's what they do in those days. And finally, God was able to use her. So you're in good company. If you're one of those who says, okay, I'm comfortable, God don't use me. And so I've been asking myself, if we are like that, how do I like ah, motivate you? Do I fret factor you <laughs> and get the uh, opposite result? What, what can I do? What can I do? I really don't know. All I can do is like, I urge you, la, just pray one simple prayer. One simple prayer. God, use me. Squeak it out. And let's see what God can do with that small little squeak of faith that you ask God, God, okay lah, use me. If we can just do that. Or maybe some of us are thinking, wow, if I say that, uh, if I say that, uh, God's going to catch that small little prayer and He's going to send me to Ebola-ridden Africa as a missionary. No! then you don't really know the Father heart of God. Uh, I think you don't really know the Father heart of God. God knows what is best. And God wants you to have that joy, that ultimate job fulfillment of being a child of God, a witness of His grace. <clears throat> That's what I, I can think of. Just that itty-bitty faith that God knows what is best. One point. The second point is the itty-bitty experience that you've, you've ever had, if you've ever taken a small step of faith and you have seen how God can use it and at the incredible joy of being used of God, then I think that will allow you to grow into the next step and the next step, that you are indeed a channel of His love and grace. Now, in the 40-day uh, prayer guide, I hope you are using it, it's, it's really good. Earlier this week, they referred to this lady called uh, Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon. She was all of 4 feet 3 inches tall. 4 feet 3 inches tall. Uh, Ang Mo, okay, Ang Mo is usually quite big. Um, and she was a missionary to China in the late 1800s. Um, difficult times she had, she was a missionary for 39 years in China. A weak instrument, meager resources, there was famine at that time. But in the year 1887, she made a very 
all proposal. She said that why not we have a special fundraising week, the week before Christmas, and just raise money to support missionaries. That's all she did. Just one small proposal. And they took up her suggestion. And then later on, they called it the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. And it's been there since the 1800s, even until today. Last year, 2013, they raised US dollars, 153 million. It was a, a record of all time. 153 million dollars they raised. And this fund supports half the Southern Baptist missionaries around the world. All because she had this small little request to make, why not a one-week uh, offering? And so, she continues to inspire. She's long dead. She spent 39 years as a missionary, uh, and, and of course, that was quite an inspiration, but there was one small suggestion. You know, we've been asking uh, cell groups, and, and especially those who don't belong to cell groups, to come and help us, you know, just, just serve together as a family, uh, refreshments at about 10.30. And I think we've got it done quite well now. Now, every cell group will, will serve for one month, and then they take an 18-month break, and then they serve again. It's not bad, right? Once in 18 months. This week is the turn of one cell group. Mary Chang's cell group. Mary Chang is one year younger than my mother. She is 74 years old, 73. And her cell group, they are, including Mary, there are six of them. And the average age is in the 70s. And they are serving food. So when we saw that this week, we said, oh, we better call up two other young men. And so we got the two young men to help. But they are willing they are willing in their 70s. They could easily have said, God, don't use me. And God will understand. <laughs> right? God will, hey, 70s are okay. Like, you know, you take a rest. But they were willing. They were willing. And I hope that this story will inspire you. Uh, you don't need to, to form a group to serve. Okay, we serve once in 18 months. That's done already. Something else. Maybe the National Day thing that you're, you're going to do, I'm sure you're going to be blessed as you go and minister to someone. One of the, the most touching testimonies I've heard from Pastor Danny, our Telugu pastor, was that when, when these Indian workers go to our clinic, our doctors touch them. You know, sometimes the, the, one of the two or three main uh, illnesses they have is um, they are generally quite bulky and, and healthy, so you're not really going to get the heart problem and a diabetes problem, but you get skin problems because they deal with acids and, and such like, or they will sprain a foot or sprain a hand, right? They do uh, labor. And, and with horrible skin that is uh, infected or something, our doctors go and touch them. And, and, and straight away, the love of God is shown. You don't even have to speak a word. And I believe that as you go out there this National Day, you're going to be blessed and you're going to be such a, a blessing. Just this morning, I received an SMS from Pastor Yob, our Bangladeshi uh, pastor, and he's asking for English teachers. He says, I need English teachers on Saturday nights. Then I say, well, I will announce. Okay, I have no further details, but whatever you can, maybe you can afford three Saturday nights or, or four Saturday nights, or maybe you can afford three years of, of Saturday nights. Then you do that little bit and see if God will bless you um, in, in, that, in that process. So, that little bit of faith, that little bit of experience, and let the Lord grow it. Okay. So, let me now invite the uh, musicians to come and help us with the closing song. Um, I just want you to, to pray in that itty-bitty small bit prayer. Um, if the Lord is already touching your heart and there is this thing that you've been saying no to God for the longest time. Okay? He's not, it's not maybe God wants to send you to Guinea <laughs> in Africa or something. Maybe it's just a small thing, you know, to go speak to someone or to just go help out in, in, in something. Then let's open up our hearts to, to God and see if 
if there might not be a lofty moon experience, there might not be something that God will just give you so much fulfillment. All the theory we know, all the theory about God being able to use a donkey and small people and all that, and weakness and all that, we know. God is not looking at your ability, but your availability, your willingness, your faithfulness. So let's rise as we sing this song together about the potter's hand. And let's use this song as a prayer and, and mean it when we sing that chorus about take me and mold me and use me. Last week, I, I went for the first ever Brethren Elders Retreat. The Brethren tradition in Singapore is 150 years this year. And for the first time ever, we had a Brethren Elders Retreat in Penang. And we ate a lot. Had a lot of fun. After one lunch, we came back together for a meeting. We're going to talk about youth work and young adults work and what is the future and all that. And we noticed that everybody was kind of sleepy, you know, ate too much and sleepy. And then I observed, out of the corner of my eye, one of the, the most senior elders asking this young guy, uh, talking to this young guy, and then he went out. And of course, he came back, he came back with kopi. Lots of packet in plastic bags. This young guy is in his 40s. He's a senior lieutenant colonel. And I straight away went up to him and I said, wow, well done, man. You kopi boy. And I think this guy is an elder. I believe he's going to go far. He, I'm sort of thinking that he might well be the next senior pastor of this Brethren Church. Just willing. Just willing. Today, I don't know, is, is Janahan going to be giving the briefing later on? Uh, he will be tired. He needs coffee. <laughs> Somebody go and buy him, buy him a coffee after he gives his briefing. Just a small thing like that. Uh, it, it shows our heart. It shows our heart. It's not easy. We had 46 people, you know, including there were 26 elders, 20 wives. 46 packets of coffee he bought back. Just walk out of the hotel and buy the coffee. It shows the heart. So let's just open our hearts, God, as we sing this chorus again and, and give it to the Lord and pray, God, use me.
bow our heads and, and close our eyes so that we are not distracted by anybody. And I pray that you can sincerely just lift up your hand and pray this prayer using the words of this song. Let me encourage you to just raise, raise your hand and say, God, take me, mold me, use me, fill me. I give my life to the potter's hand. You call me, guide me, lead me, walk beside me. I give my life to the potter's hand. And let's have faith that as we bring our lives before Almighty God, He's going to come and touch our hearts. He's going to open it up to reveal His own heart that we can see through God's eyes the people He's going to be putting across our path that we can bless them, we can serve them as simple as serving a cup of coffee or something more that we, we won't even know. Right now, we can't, even, we can't even imagine. But all we can do now is ask and commit. God, use me. I'm available. I am weak. I fear. And sometimes I even say, don't use me. But I want to overcome that. Lord, use me. Fill me. Lead me. Walk beside me. Empower me to be your instrument of love and grace to people around me. Thank you for hearing our prayers. By faith, we receive what you will give to us, that power, that strength, that availability to God's Spirit working in us to be instruments, channels of blessings. Thank you, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.